Welcome to the Some of It All Thinking Classrooms podcast. I'm Audrey Mandeville, along with my colleague, Mark Alcorn from the San Diego County Office of Education. And we're gonna explore Peter Liljezal's newest book, Building Thinking Classrooms in Mathematics. In this episode, we are going to explore chapter 12 on what we choose to evaluate in a thinking classroom. And this chapter begins a three-part series on evaluation, assessment, and grading, which are always hot topics in mathematics. Um, and this chapter does not disappoint. I'm pointing out some things on evaluation that I had not thought about. So to get us started, what was your first reaction to chapter 12, Mark? Thanks, Audrey. Um, I, you know, I thought it was interesting. Peter starts right away with this connection back to chapter eight. And as you recall, chapter eight around, is around students define, are gaining autonomy. And, uh, you know, it's just really interesting how he connects this to the idea of assessment. Uh, because in essence, like, we're really looking to try to th figure out how to give feedback and encourage self-reflection about our students' progress in developing their autonomy. So it's, it's, it's kind of a nice package how, you know, if this is all about thinking classrooms, then, you know, we could sit here and throw all these strategies into play about thinking classrooms. But then if we're not sort of seeing how kids are progressing along that, um, and, and measuring that autonomy, then we're, we're, we're not really not gonna know how it's working. Yeah, you're so right. And I think that's so important to remember. Um, I thought it was super fascinating how um, they kind of engaged in that thinking around what it would mean to evaluate that kind of autonomy and how do you identify those characteristics? Um, you wanna talk a little bit about his process in doing that? Yeah, I, I thought it was fascinating because in the book he mentions how there was just this wide range of competencies when they had teachers engaged in professional learning and they, they shared the ones that they thought would be uh, the most important. But when they asked the teachers to roll them up to three, there were three that, that came up like to be the most. So I thought that was interesting how there was, there was a wide range, but then when asked to roll, up to roll, up, roll them up to three, there was a consensus and it was around perseverance willingness to take risks and the ability to collaborate. So those were the three that, um, you know, rose to the top. And I, I think the thing that's interesting about that is I know I've been in many conversations about how do we measure behavior like this in classrooms? Um, there's, there seems to be lots of a consensus around these type of competencies or something similar to these. Um, when we do vision work with groups of people, these type of competencies rise to the top. Uh, they weren't a surprise to me. You know, they, uh, they certainly were things that I, I think of a lot and I think a lot of educators do. But boy, thinking about how we could measure um, progress around these competencies, that's pretty exciting. It is. You know, I think this book has offered a lot of strategies um, and the principles of designing the thinking classroom to help build these in students, right? So that's answered kind of the first question is like, how do you help build perseverance? How do you help students learn to take risks, right? And there's a whole bunch of like those how-tos in those principles, like using those random groups and the thinking tasks and all right. those pieces. But we get to that place of like, how do you know that you had any impact on students? How do you know they grew, right? And how do you know it's worth all the time? And there's a lot there in both um, yourself as an educator feeling like it's worth it, right? But you also at some point have to, um, you have to show your work to someone else, whether it's the parents or your administrators or the students themselves and say like, look, 
like you've grown and we can show you've grown and here's how we know. And so I think it's really important to tackle this question about how do you evaluate um, some of these things that are considered, you know, at some points considered soft skills or 21st century skills or other, you know, these these things about students' autonomy that they're building that are not necessarily the math content. Right. Um, yeah. Oh, go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say, Audrey, um, to go along with that, it, wasn't it interesting how he shared sort of the existing state of where some of these things were in terms of, you know, he starts with the idea of a rubric, right? And, you know, what, where have rubrics been used um, for this type of thing? Because, you know, in, in in the spirit of the book, in the spirit of the things that he's offered. I don't know about you, but I wasn't that surprised that it was a rubric. I'm like, oh, that follows along with the, the type of um, structures that would be in place for Peter to offer. Um, but when I turn the page from 211 to 212, I don't know about you, <laughs> but on 212, I know for our listeners, if you don't have a book in front of you, you, you can't see it. But there's a rubric that clearly takes up the entire page. Yeah, the entire and, page. Um, you know, and it's funny, I, I was sort of self-monitoring my own reaction and it was a little bit of being overwhelmed. And, you know, it's, it's interesting for me as an educator, not as a student, if I was overwhelmed by this rubric as an educator, uh, who, who knows how a student would receive this particular um, rubric. And, you know, Peter even mentions that even when the rubric was used by a teacher and it was handed back to the students, 75% of students spent less than 10 seconds looking at the rubric that the teacher hand, had handed back to them. So, you know, I, I just kind of picture myself as a teacher spending hours like just laboring over these rubrics, wanting to give all this feedback, <laughs> spending 10 seconds to look at it. Like, oh, okay. <laughs> Yeah, I got to tell you, Mark, I, I was introduced to rubrics at some point in my classroom, and I started using them extensively. And I started with three levels. Um, and, so, you know, was told by someone who had more experience than I did that three was not enough, we needed five. And I think they wanted that so they could correlate it to an ABCD F, which we can unpack when we get to grading, which is a different chapter. Um, but the nuanced language between a four and a three and a three and a two, you would take so much time writing. And like, I would want it to be clear so that when I graded it, I would be able to hold on, grade it. Look, I use this language. When I evaluated what the student had, you know, earned that I would be able to circle with, you know, or highlight and say like, this is for sure what this product or this behavior or whatever earned. Um, and it never worked. So I. I said, okay, well, I can't use five. So I went to four and thought four would work for a little while, but still between the, those two middle ones, you know, it's like sometimes and usually, well, what's the difference between sometimes and usually <laughs> like that's, yeah. we're splitting hairs now, right? Yeah, right. You'll never get that normed across a grade level of teachers. <laughs> no. And so I think it's critical when you think through like this idea of focusing on student action and not student work, when we're mm. talking about these specific competencies, um, that we that we really think about what does it look like and sound like for a student to be engaged and risk-taking? What does it look like and sound like for a student to be persevering? Um, can really help us then start to define this. And it really, um, it reminds me of the work that Jennifer Gonzalez um, in the Cult of Pedagogy, she has both a blog and a podcast, talked about um, using single point rubrics. And for a while right. it was just like name 
what it is that it mm-hmm. looks like when it's done. What does like mm-hmm. good look like? Right. Um, and Peter talks about kind of starting there with kids too, at some point, right? That you got to name what's it look like on the one hand when you get it. Um, and on the other hand, what's it not look like? Yeah, exactly. And what is, wasn't it dramatic to go from 212 where you have this full page rubric in small font, by the way, as well. Oh yeah. Um, and then you go to page 213 with this proposed rubric and only one competency is being measured. He uses collaboration. And for our listeners, just so you can get an idea of what you would be looking at, on the there's a left-hand column that has um, the things that if it's the competency is not being met. And on the right-hand column, there's a list of descriptors of if it is being met. And then there's a, a, a line with an arrow going to the right up, at, up over the top. So you can just see there's this, there's this yes, if it's happening, the opposite if it's happening, and this continuum that's created with this arrow above that. And I don't know about you, Audrey, I was just struck by the simplicity of that. Yeah, I, I really did. I felt like I could read each word and understand it and appreciate it. Whereas I tried a couple times on that first overwhelming rubric. And I, I got to tell you, I, I did not read all the words on that page um, or make <laughs> sense of them all. Um, it's just overwhelming, like you said. Um, and even further along those lines, like this idea of like for our kindergarten and first grade students who are still gaining their, um, their language skills and their reading skills, I thought it was genius to say, hey, we use visuals instead. And so just have those visuals of what it looks like and what it doesn't look like. So still the two columns, um, but maybe the visuals to help students think about what that looks and sounds like when they've accomplished it or when they haven't, what's the opposite of it? Super, super interesting. You you know, I had a couple other connections to just the notion of a continuum. I just, I, I thought just this, these two opposites on each end, I thought really, um, connected to other things that, that, that kids can really make connections to in their learning. I was actually thinking back to a designated ELD lesson I was teaching with fifth graders once. And what I did was, is I had the opposites of two words on, on the same type of a chart where it, it might be the word for something very, very large and the word for something very, very small. And the words that would go in between that to show the nuances of the language. And so I just use that example to say that I think this idea of opposites and students thinking about where did, where did they land in between those opposites and what language would I use to describe where my placement of my progress in my group today was or, or my whole group, how would we describe where we are? So I just love the idea that the language would come from the students, not the teacher language on the long rubric that is hard to navigate, but students coming up with language to describe where on the continuum they are between those opposites. Um, I think that's pretty cool. Yeah, I agree with you. I think there's two place, two pieces there I think that are really struck me. One was that when we remove the language at the top of the rubric that describes um, the headings essentially mm-hmm. of like, you know, you've made it and you haven't made it. And we just put that arrow there that students, both with a fixed mindset and a growth mindset, are able to actually imagine themselves on a continuum, right? right. As opposed to accepting that label as something that they are, right? Yeah. They see it instead as a place that they're at for now, mm-hmm. right? And so right. then we're able to right. say, like, 
I'm moving, I'm moving that direction. And I think that's super powerful for students to feel like they have agency in making changes to their behavior and who they are as a mathematician and a thinker in your classroom. Um, but the second part of what you're talking about, Mark, is, is like critical about this co-authorship, right? Like students co-constructing the language and making it their language. Um, the empowering of student voice is um, huge. And I think that's um, an absolutely critical area when we talk about equity and we talk about um, having culturally responsive pedagogy and thinking about including all of our learners. But I also think that it's, it's necessary when we think about developing our learners into the people who are ready for the workforce of yeah. the future, right? Mm -hmm. Like you right. have to be able to advocate for these words on your own and come up with them and navigate what that means and sounds like um, and feel like you have some authority to do so. So I thought that was absolutely critical. Yeah, there's one other little piece to that, Audrey, that he wrote about that I just thought was so fascinating. You know, he mentioned that to your point, having the students come up with the language on either end, you know, the opposites, having them develop that language, sort of like in a in a rough draft state. And then if you come back with the final draft the next day, he suggests that you put them side by side so the kids can visibly see that you used their language. And, you know, that took me way back to visibly random groups with the word visibly. Um, I think we have some trust issues in education between uh, yeah. the students, between the students and the teachers, because um, I think there's this default amongst students is that you know there's always some funny business about to break out in the background, behind the scenes, behind the curtain of education. Teachers are sort of working behind the scenes, unbeknownst to students, and so I think that that's it's funny in some ways, but it's super serious in in a real way that we we need to understand that we've really got to develop trust with our students that we really mean what we say and we really value what they have to say. And rather than it being this just little game that we're playing with them, you know? I, I think that's a great point, Mark. I think um, the idea of trust and building those, um, those communication lines, I feel like that's what the book is premised on is that mm. we keep saying that we want kids to think and then we do all these things that shortcut it and say, not really, right? And so how do we make our actions and how we set up our classroom and the things we do all communicate in the same way, what's really at the heart of it, which is that we are trying our best as educators to support each of these students in becoming their best selves. And so, you know, each of those pieces um, is wrapped up in that communication, I think. Yeah, absolutely. So speaking of the communication, let, let's talk a little bit about actually using the rubric and, and how that is, is setting those expectations. What, what did you think about some of that? You know, um, I, I have to admit, this, is, this, was one of the, um, this was one of the learning moments in the chapter. Like I felt like, hey, rubrics, I, I know a thing or two about rubrics as a teacher. And yeah, that looks a lot better than some of the ones I created, but I wasn't that far off. But then we talk about how students use them and I totally messed, I totally missed this one completely. Um, so first of all, I just have to say like, one of the lines that completely struck me is that when, um, is that students are self-evaluating, right? Like there, it is right. critical that students self-evaluate themselves. Now the teacher is also going to evaluate some of the students on some of the days, essentially is how it works out. Um, mm -hmm. You'll have to read more in the chapter to figure out what some of uh, the advice of the research is on those pieces. Mm -hmm. But I thought it was really interesting about how um, Peter talks about like, you cannot as a teacher 
become just an evaluator during class. Your role is still to do this work of um, facilitating and making sure that students are staying in the flow, right? That they're not yeah. moving outside of, of those pieces into danger zones and you're getting ready for consolidation. Like that is a lot of work to do. You cannot take on evaluating every single one of your students at the same time that you would do those other two roles successfully. And that really hit me because I think there were times when I said, for today, I'm just the evaluator. So don't worry, I'm just watching what you're doing. That is such a good point, Audrey. I mean, isn't the structure of how we do teaching that today is book report day where everybody shares their book report and the teacher sits in the back of the room and, and on the rubric takes the notes. So I think you have such an important point that we're used to have we're choosing, we're used to choosing, you know, this is the grading day. No, this is the day I walk around and consolidate. And he makes an important distinction in saying that just pick three groups because you need to keep that other role going. This isn't about one day being the test day. Uh, so I, I just thought that was important. Absolutely. I also thought it was really interesting how you don't have to do that forever. That once, you know, once you've co-created a rubric on something that you need to create it on, right? So as it right. comes up, you co-create this rubric, you mm -hmm. use it for a number of days, you know, three or four days. And as sure. students start to do that process, you move on, right? right? Until you see another one that has to happen. And I just thought there's a simplicity to that where it's not always hyper-focused on like for the next three weeks, we are collaboration focused, right? Um, right? And then never mind, we're no longer collaboration focused. We are focused on perseverance, which is so unnatural to the way we work. It really should be about like, gosh, I don't see the perseverance happening very much today. So let me grab out that old perseverance rubric or let's co-create one if we don't have one. And let's focus in on what we got to do better in order to have thinking happen right now in this class. Yeah, absolutely. And to that, to that point, Audrey, if you look on the bottom of 223 and it goes onto the top of 224, there's, and he doesn't explain it very much, but I think there's just this beautiful sentence that um, to me, if I were full-time in the classroom, I'd be like, this is what I want to happen. And, and here's how the sentence goes. And once in a while, you will see a group member pulling out an old rubric for their group because that individual or the group as a whole is aware that they aren't behaving as they should. And I think that characterizes kind of what you've been talking about today, which is this idea of what are, where do we want this to go? We want, we want our children, our students to become these productive citizens that sort of see the need for something and then take out the tool to use to, to achieve that end. Yeah. So I, I just thought that was great. I, I think the self-advocacy there for saying like, we can do better at this and we have a tool to help us do that is, is amazing. I think it goes back to this idea that we need to start evaluating what we value. And so if we're mm. gonna tell our students that in this classroom, we value these three competencies for, for sake of, you know, argument in this case, like, then we got to evaluate them. We got to teach our students how to evaluate them so that they can then monitor their progress towards it and say like, yeah, we had a good day of perseverance or no, we didn't. And what got in the way of that, right? And they can start to acknowledge those pieces, be more mindful of them, um, which I think really moves into that space of, of metacognition and as a learner, being really empowered to continue being a learner um, because they know how to do this thing called learning and thinking. 
I wholeheartedly agree. I, I think you summed that up well. Um, well, speaking of summing it up, I think we've summed up this particular chapter. Uh, thanks for joining us. Uh, in our next episode, we'll chat about chapter 13, which is about how we use formative assessment in a thinking classroom. So we'll continue with this theme of assessment. Until then, send us a tweet with the hashtag SumMathChat. That's hashtag S-U-M-M-A-T-H-C-H-A-T with your questions and thoughts. We'll keep the conversation going there. Until then, we wish you great mathematical adventures. Bye for now. Mm -hmm.